morning. You guys ready for this? Here we go. Exodus, the way out. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Exodus chapter 13, Belonging to God is the title of this weekend's message. Also grab your sermon notes out. And you'll see on the top there, God created us and redeemed us, and therefore he, he owns us. We owe our life to him. After all he's done for us. God sets us free, he redeems us, so that we would no longer live for ourselves, but for him as we were originally designed. He owns us and we owe our lives to him. You've heard this challenge, I'm sure, many times here. How can you come to terms with someone giving himself completely for you without you giving yourself completely for him? (laughs) That's, in essence, the Christian life. You want to give your life to him when you understand all he's done for you. Jesus gave himself completely for us. So now we must give ourselves completely to him. What does that mean? That's what we're going to talk about here today. Uh, What does it mean to belong to God? And uh, before we take a look at our text and unpack these notes and work through our notes, let's pray. Would you bow your heads with me? Once again, let's go before the throne of grace. God, we are delighted to be here this morning. We love your presence. And Father, as I pray, 2 Corinthians 5, 14 through 15, it's the love of Christ that controls us, it motivates us, it moves us, it stirs us, it ravishes our hearts. And because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Teach us what that means to belong to you. We pray these things in Jesus' beautiful name, and everyone said, amen. amen. Let's, uh, let me kind of bring you up to speed if you haven't been with us. We're going our way through the uh, book of Exodus, chapter 12. You guys remember what chapter 12 was about? It was about Passover. It's about redemption. And so now that the Israelites are redeemed, Redemption means to be set free. Now that they are set free by God, and we learned what it means to be set free in Exodus 12, that it means a new future, a new family, a new forgiveness, a new feast, and a new freedom. But now that they are set free by God, how should they live as a redeemed people of God? So that's a great question. If you understand what Christ has done for you, and you have entered into faith uh, in him by his grace, then the next response would be, okay, after all he's done for me, how can I live my life for him? What does that mean that I now belong to him? And that's what this chapter is all about. And uh, so let me read through this chapter. I'll just highlight a few things and then we will uh, work through our notes and really pretty much answer that question. People who belong to God will do these certain things. And uh, by the way, you may think that you're a Christian and uh, you might not be. And we're gonna find out as we work through this. I I hope that if not, by the end of the message that you do make a confession of faith in Christ and you give your life to him and you understand what that means to truly belong to him. Because I'll tell you this, that there is nothing there is no one who has, who's ever loved you more than Jesus. There's no one that's ever loved you more. There's no greater life than what's found in him. There's no greater liberty. Regardless of what you may think, uh, 
There's no greater freedom than what is found in being fully devoted to him. And so that's what this looks like. So uh, look at chapter 13, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, consecrate to me all the firstborn. So this is right after the Passover, right after redemption. He's just saying, okay, this is what I want you to do. This is how you need to respond to me. Consecrate. The word consecrate means to sanctify or set apart. We get the word uh, holy or holiness from that word. And so say, uh, Consecrate to me all the firstborn, whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and of beast, is mine. Then Moses said to the people, remember this day in which you came out from Egypt. Remember, Egypt represents enslavement. It means a life apart from God. It means doing your own thing, which inevitably brings enslavement and chasing after counterfeit gods and pseudo-saviors and things like that. And so just remember when, he, when you came out from Egypt and out of the house of slavery, for by a strong hand the Lord brought you out from this place. That word, that phrase there, a strong hand, the strong hand of the Lord, it's used here in verse 3, but it'll also be used as, you, as we work through the text, verse 9, verse 14, verse 16. Anytime the Bible uses a phrase like this over and over again, obviously carries a lot of weight, really, really important. And so the strong hand of the Lord, it wasn't because of what you did. You didn't redeem yourself. He redeemed you. He rescued you. He reconciled you to the Father. And so it's the strong hand of the Lord brought you out from this place, from Egypt. And then he says, no, leavened bread shall be eaten. Today in the house of Abib, you are going out. And when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, which he swore to your fathers to give you a land flowing with milk and honey. What land is this? This is the, the land of promise. Yeah, the promised land. And so this land flowing with milk and honey, those, so this is an Old Testament picture of a New Testament promise or principle that there's that fullness of life that's found in Christ. So we have, in a sense, the, a taste of the promised land through knowing Jesus and flowing with milk. Milk speaks of strength. Honey speaks of satisfaction. And he says, you shall keep this service, the service that he's talking about here, is that he's just saying, you need to commemorate this day. You need to celebrate this day in a feast, the feast of the Passover and the feast of uh, the unleavened bread. So you need to keep this service in this month. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a feast to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days. No leavened bread shall be seen with you, and no leaven shall be seen with you in all your territory. What does leaven represent in the scriptures, particularly in the Old Testament? Anybody? Sin, yeah. It represents sin. So he's just saying you need to kind of remove the sin from your life. We'll talk about that. A lot of people don't really understand what, that, what sin is. And so we'll talk about that as we work through our notes. And then verse 8, you shall tell your son on that day it is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. So he's given us some really great parenting advice here. So what you need to tell your children regularly about how God has redeemed you that you're a different person because of God rescuing you and loving you and reconciling you to the Father in all that he's done. So that needs to be part of your language regularly to your kids. Oh, yeah, mommy got stressed out because mom's not 
trusting Jesus right now, but I'm learning how to do that. And if it wasn't for Jesus, I would probably be killing you kids right now, okay? <laughs> and so you just, that's, that, that's okay. You could kind of share that a little bit. I mean, that's just part of uh, God is still working on mommy and daddy. He's working more on daddy than he is mommy, okay? And don't you ever forget that. But that's what he's saying. He's just saying you need to communicate those things to your kids. And then, and it shall be to you as a sign on your hand. In other words, don't just talk about it. Don't just talk about how great, great God is and how great Jesus is and how he's transformed your life. Show it in your hand. Hand would represent your your behavior, your response, your actions, and as a memorial between your eyes, not only that, it should change your perspective, how you see life, your view on life. You're going to have a biblical worldview as a result of, of what Christ has done in your life and, and that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. Oh my goodness, your life's going to be saturated with God's word, so it just kind of overflows your life. So you're not just talking about it, they're seeing it lived out in your life. Verse 10, you shall therefore keep this statute at, at its appointed time from year to year. The statute here obviously is the feast of, of the Passover, feast of unleavened bread, and just commemorate what God has done. He's redeemed you. Verse 11, when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, once again, the land of promise, the promised land, as he swore to you and your fathers, uh, and shall give it to you, you shall set apart. There's another way of saying uh, consecrate. So consecrate means to set apart or to sanctify, to make holy something very sacred, very special to you. You shall set apart to the Lord all that, that first opens the womb, all the firstborn of your animals that are males shall be the Lord's. Every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb. Or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. Every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. And when in time to come your son asks you, what does this mean? You shall say to him, so, so the first time you're just telling them, the second time he's going to come and say, hey, why did you go to church and why do you read your Bible and why do you pray and, and why do we take communion and why do we baptize people and uh, why do we practice the Sabbath where we take a day where we rest and we just reflect on God? Why do we do all of that? And this is what he's saying. So you need to tell him because, honey, God has redeemed us and no one has ever loved us more and after all he's done for us, oh my goodness, we want to serve him. We want to love him. We want to honor him. That's, that's what he's saying here. And he kind of goes on and kind of gives the gospel message through this. And he says, and when it is time to come, your son asks, what does this mean? You shall say to him, by a strong hand of the Lord, he brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. Oh my goodness, your mommy and daddy were enslaved to sin and all kinds of issues and things were going on and now Jesus has set us free. We're not perfect by a long shot, but he's still working in our lives and you need to know that. And so for when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, so he's telling the story here, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that first opened the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem, and it shall be as a mark on your hand. In other words, don't just talk about it. 
Live it out. Let it be a part of your, your behavior, your hand and the frontlets between your eyes. Have it change your perspective. For by a strong hand, wasn't anything we did. We didn't obey him and get his blessing. We have his blessing. Therefore, that's why we're obeying him. We understood the implications of all that he's done for us. Because by his strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt. And when Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines. So they're exiting, they're heading out of Exodus. And God's leading them. Now, this is really significant what's, what he's saying here. He's just saying, so when Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. So if they would have taken this route, it would have only taken them about 14 to 15 days to get to the promised land, but he doesn't lead them that direction. Now, I used to think, and I used to tell people, the reason why the nation of Israel wandered around in the wilderness for how many years? 40 years is because of their unbelief. And it's kind of partially because of their unbelief, but actually it's because that's the direction God led them. And he answers why he did that right here. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. They're gonna face war, they're unprepared for it, so I need to take them the long route and they're going to have to wander around in the wilderness because I'm going to prepare them for battle because they're going to face battles in the promised land unlike they've ever experienced before. But if they were to go right there, they would have been unprepared. So think about that. He leads us sometimes in ways that we think, wait a minute, God, why are you leading? This seems like the long way around. Why is it taking me so long? He says, well, it's because it is. It's a, you've got a lot of things to learn still, and so that's why I'm taking you this long route here. In fact, it, it says in that next verse, but God led the people around by the way of the wilderness, which took him 40 years, toward the Red Sea. That doesn't sound very wise, towards the Red Sea. Their back is against the Red Sea. Guess what's gonna happen? Uh, Pharaoh's going to have a change of mind and he's going to send, after, send uh, his troops out to destroy them. Of course, God's going to part the Red Sea. Let's come back next week. That's what we'll talk about there. But by way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea, most strategists would say that doesn't look very wise. Why would they do that? Because God's leading them and God's going to provide for them. Wherever God guides, he provides. He takes care of us. Even if it doesn't make sense to you, it makes perfect sense to God and you have to trust him in whatever way he's leading. And then it says, and the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. Now they were equipped for battle but not to the degree that God wants them to. And uh, Moses took the bones of Joseph with him for, for Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear saying, God will surely visit you and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. How many years have they had his bones? How many years have they been in enslavement in Egypt? 400 years. So they've hung on to his bones. So this should have given them a little bit of hope. And uh, the fact that uh, this was a kind of uh, Joseph speaking prophetically to them 400 years earlier, and he said, hey, God's going to come and visit you, and he's going to lead you out of this, and so when you are led out and you're heading into the promised land, I, I want you to take my bones. And that's exactly what they're doing here. Pretty profound here. And then verse 20, and they moved on from Succoth and encamped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness, and the Lord, his personal name Yahweh, now this is a theophany, this is God, a manifestation of God, went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light that they might travel by day and night. It's interesting when you look for 
appearances of God through Scripture, there's something very similar found in Genesis chapter 15, verse 17, where God shows up uh, through the representation of a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch to Abraham, the father of our faith. So it's fascinating here. Verse 22, the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. This is the word of the Lord to us. So, okay, that's the text. There's a lot there. So let's talk about this. So chapter 12, redemption, chapter Chapter 13, consecration, my life belongs to him. So what does that mean? Do do you understand that? Are you a follower of Christ? Are you a Christian? So if you're a Christian, this is what it means. Now, when you understand all that he's done for you, this is how you're gonna wanna give your life to him. People who belong to God will, first of all, consecrate their whole life to him. They will consecrate their whole life to him. You see that in verses one and two of our text. The Lord said to Moses, consecrate to me all the firstborn. Now, in the 10th plague, All of Israel's firstborn were uh, saved along with their families because of salvation by substitution of a lamb. What did they do with the blood of the lamb? They put it uh, over what? Yeah, their doorpost, which represents the cross to us. And so it was uh, salvation by substitution of a lamb, which is a shadow of the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, John 1, 29. So because of this great act of redemption by God, he is saying now to the people that they are to consecrate to him all the firstborn. Now, what does that represent in the Bible? Well, the firstborn represented the whole family. And by dedicating the firstborn to God, they were saying, our family belongs to you, Lord. And in fact, the word consecrate, the Hebrew, literally means give yourself wholly to God. Give yourself wholly to God. There's other words that we use, like I said, are holiness. And uh, so to be holy is to wholly belong to God. To be holy is to wholly, W W. H-O-L-L-Y, holy, my whole life belongs to God. Um, And I've often used the word also uh, wholeness. I believe that the more you are holy, the more you are set apart, the more you realize you belong to God and you live in the reality of that, the more you will experience wholeness. Wholeness, W-H-O-L-E-N-E-S-S, wholeness. Nothing will put your life back together like being fully devoted to God and understanding what he's done through redemption to rescue us and to love us and to redeem us. See, see, redemption is not our work. It's a work of God. All we're doing is responding to it by grace through faith in Christ. So the gospel, the good news is that God has reconciled us to himself by sending his son to die in our place for our sins and all who repent and believe have eternal life. So that's the gospel, that's redemption. We repent, we, we believe, repentance and belief is consecrating our life to him, giving our life completely to him. And therefore, When we do that, he begins to take the pieces of our lives and begins to put them all back together again. Our lives are quite shattered because of sin and scattered because of sin. And so God puts our lives back together again. There's a wholeness. There's a a life liberation that we experience that we cannot experience any other way. And there's a soul satisfaction 
that's beyond your wildest dreams that can only be found in Jesus Christ. Let me give you some verses that kind of help you to understand what this, this idea of consecration means. And so we consecrate our whole life to him. Uh, 1 Corinthians 6.19, it says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? Is that crazy or what? I mean, I love that. What? Yeah. When I put my faith in Jesus, bam, the Holy Spirit comes to live within me. My body becomes a temple of the Holy Spirit. Think about that. Spend the day thinking about that. I mean, that'll change you. And so he says, or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a prize, so glorify God in your body. Body just meaning this is the vehicle that we live in, and so with everything, with your every breath, with everything you think, you do, everything about you should bring glory to God. Now, the word glory is an interesting word. It just means, means weight, significance, importance. So it just means that you live your life in such a way people will look at you and go, oh my goodness, God's really, really important to them. In fact, God is their most satisfying reality. I can tell by how they live out their life because you've heard us say this many times before, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. So that's the best way to do that. And so because we're saved by grace, we're not our own in fact, a woman once said to Pastor Timothy Keller, if I knew I was saved because of what I did, if I contributed to my salvation, then God couldn't ask anything of me because I'd made a contribution. But if I'm saved by grace, sheer grace, then there's nothing he cannot ask of me. And that's right. You're not your own. You were bought with a price. It was the cross that cost God to punish sin without punishing you. His son was beaten beyond recognition for you because he loved you that much to reconcile you back to the Father because your sin separated you from God. And that's, that's what redemption does. And so our, obviously, man, we just want to give our lives to him. Uh, Romans 14, 7 through 8, it says, For none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. So what does that mean to be the Lord's? What does that mean Consecrate our lives completely to him. Well, it means that we rely wholly on God's word for right and wrong. We don't try to come up with right and wrong as we see in our culture today. A lot of people think that they can pick and choose what's right and wrong. You know, morality is a matter of opinion or of taste. And that's not true. God has already established that for us in his word. And so that's what that means, first and foremost, that we rely wholly on God's word for right and wrong. But it also means that we always put first what pleases God and loves our neighbor we would do that first. I want to please him. I want to honor him. I want to put him on display. And then I want to love those that are around me. That, that just makes sense. Because when your life is filled up with God and all that he's done for you, oh my goodness, you're going to want to reflect his beauty and his glory. You want to do that which pleases him. And then you're going to want to love others. And then the third one here that I've got is that 
we trust God. So what does it mean to be uh, holy gods, uh, to be consecrated to God? We trust God through the good and the bad days in life and in death. Regardless of what goes down in my life, I'm just going to trust him. Because I believe he's calling the shots for my life. I, he, he owns me. So even if my life takes a dump, I probably shouldn't use it like that, should I? Huh? <laughs> that sounds rude. I just now thought of that as I was saying. I, probably, I didn't say that in the other two services, so you guys get, to, you get the raw ray, okay, right there, sorry. Raw ray, okay. That sounds weird too. Where are we going with this message? What did I just say? Uh, yeah, if your life just takes a left instead of a right. Now, if, you're, if your life just, I mean, it's just from this point on, if your life never turns back in a direction that you would appreciate it, that you would love or whatever, it doesn't matter. You belong to him. You've never been more satisfied. You've got him. You've got God. He's, you belong to him. He's calling the shots. You don't own him. He owns you. You don't flip it around, but that's our culture. We want to flip it around. I'm going to tell him a thing or two. He's going to, I'm going to set, wait, wait, wait. You, by the way, if you don't know him, you're going to have a hard time trusting him. So let me just say that he's perfect in love. He's infinite in wisdom. He's unlimited in his power. And so the more you get to know him, the more you can go. It doesn't matter how bad my life gets or how ugly it gets. I'm his and God, I'm going to put on display your glory regardless if it's a good day, bad day, ugly day. It doesn't matter because I love you. Okay. I said too much there because we've got a lot more to go. But, uh, but so what would be the abiding attitude of someone who relies wholly on God's word for right and wrong, seeks to please God and love their neighbor and trust God in all circumstances? What would be the abiding attitude? If you really understand that God owns you, and your holy gods, what would be the abiding attitude? Here's what I believe it would be. I believe it would be gratefulness, gratitude, it would be joy. Now, why is that? Why is that? Because when God calls you to live a consecrated life, when he calls you to live a holy life, he is inviting you to do what will give you the deepest and most durable joy and satisfaction in life. So holiness and happiness, I know, sometimes you don't want to, because oftentimes we define happiness as happenings or whatever our circumstances, but I'm talking about a happiness that's based on joy. It's just a play on words, but happiness and holiness are one and the same pursuit. In fact, listen to what C.S. Lewis put it, put it this way. He said, how little people know who think that holiness is dull. When one meets the real thing, it is irresistible. Spurgeon put it this way, holiness is the royal road to happiness. Holiness is the royal road to happiness. The death of sin is the joy of life, or is the life, is the life of joy. Let me say that again. The death of sin is the life of joy. After coming to Christ, Hannah Wittall Smith warned her son Frank, there is such a thing as having just enough religion to make one miserable. And as long as you hold back from a full surrender to his will, this will be the situation. Oh, do let Jesus have all your heart. 
He will give you such fullness of joy in himself that will far more than repay you for any earthly pleasure you think you may miss because of it. That's brilliant. That's awesome. That's 100% right. See, holiness is being so satisfied in God that sin loses its appeal. It's like, why would I chase that? I've got him. People who belong to God will consecrate their whole life to him. So it's really about finding your deepest delight in him. He, you're just, you're, you're satisfied in him and you, my, my life is yours, God. Here's the next one. So people who belong to God will commemorate the blessings from him. And so you got, he's challenging them. He's telling them that they need to commemorate uh, Feast of Passover, Feast of Unleavened Bread. So remember this day, this is verse three. Remember this day in which you came out from Egypt by a strong hand of the Lord. Verse five, and when the Lord brings you into the land, especially when he brings you into the land, you need to continue to do these things. You need to commemorate this day. Why? Because success causes us to kind of lose track of where we've been. We tend to put God on the shelf. We think we kind of get filled up with ourselves and kind of think, well, I, I accomplished this. No, 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 you didn't accomplish this. The land of success you live in wasn't because you're so great. And that's what he's saying. That's why you need to commemorate these days. You need to commemorate the blessings from God. Psalm 103, 1 and 2. I love this uh, psalm. He says, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all of his benefits. Now, this psalm is interesting. It's different from most of the other psalms. Most of the other psalms are kind of towards God. And there are some psalms headed kind of this way, kind of telling people to, hey, join me as I celebrate God. But most of them are kind of towards God. But this one is, this guy's talking to himself, okay? This psalm, he's like, bless the Lord, O my soul, and bless his holy name. Bless the Lord. So you do talk to yourself. You know that, don't you? I've seen you <laughs> driving down the road. You're just carrying on conversation. I look to see who's in the passenger seat. And there's nobody there. <laughs> we all talk to ourselves. We all do that. In fact, some of you need to talk to yourself more often and quit listening to yourself because the reason why you're depressed is because you're listening to yourself way too much and you need to start talking to yourself and you need to start talking to yourself like this psalmist is talking to himself and this is what he's saying. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Come on, soul. It's almost like he's grabbing himself by the shirt collar and going, come on, soul. Bless the Lord. Get your head out of the sand. Get your head out of your problems. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not his benefits. So if I were to come to you and say, so let me just tell me, what are some of the benefits that you just cherish, that you love in the Lord? You ought to be able to talk nonstop. I mean, just go, oh my goodness. Do you have like a couple years here? Because I'm gonna tell you exactly what the Lord means to me and all the benefits that I have in him. And that's literally what he does. He spends this whole chapter and he goes through a list. He says, and oh my soul and forget not all of his benefits, who forgives, who heals, who redeems, who crowns, who satisfies. And he just spends the rest of the chapter just working out the implications of each of those. Second Peter 1.9, it says, uh, the writer here says, for whoever lacks these qualities, and he's, he just finished 
let me give you the context here. He, he just finished Second uh, Peter 1, 3 is a wonderful verse. You've heard me quote it many times before, I'm sure. But he says, uh, it says this, his divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through the knowledge of him who's called us by his glory and goodness. He's just saying, my goodness, do you understand the intimacy that you have with God and the divine power that dwells within you because of the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit? And then he talks about, after that, he goes through the promises that we have in God. Now, as a result of intimacy with God and these promises, begin to make sure that you've got these qualities in your life. And he lists these qualities, faith, virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, and love. And so he goes through these qualities. And then he says this. This is really fascinating because he says, for whoever lacks these qualities. So if you don't have these qualities, you are nearsighted. And you're blind, having forgotten that you have been cleansed from your former sins. In other words, you've missed, you've lost track of your justification, your redemption. You're not living in the reality of it. You have forgotten that he has wiped your slate completely clean and you stand before God completely perfect. And do you understand you have intimacy with him? And do you understand all the promises you have in him? You have forgotten that. Therefore, you don't have life change and you don't have these qualities in your life. And, uh, and it's because we, we struggle remembering in our attention deficit disorder culture and society where we tend to skim everything, skim through internet and this article and that and whatever, and we kind of lose track of those things that are really, really important. How many uh, remember this? It's been uh, probably about 20 years now, but uh, they came out with uh, this kind of this slogan that, that kind of went big, and it was WWJD. You guys remember that one? How many remember that WWJD? I still can't figure out what WWJD represents or what it stands for. Does, it, does anybody? No, I'm kidding. I'm just, just joking. I was pulling your chain on that one. I knew exactly what it stood for. And, uh, you know, the holy hardware and Jesus junk got, I mean, it went big. And uh, was that about 20 years ago? How many remember? Remember that? You guys are old. Yeah, so... Uh, so about 20 years ago, what would Jesus do? Let me, let me tell you that there's a much more important question than that. Because I'm telling you that if all you do is spend most of your life focused on what would Jesus do, what would Jesus do, what would Jesus do, that's called moralism, it's called religion. And you can go to a half dozen churches right here in the valley and that's what you're gonna get. You're gonna get a dose of moralism. Be good, try harder. Come on, boys and girls, be nice. Play with your toys nicely. That's not what the Bible teaches. It does tell us what would Jesus do, but there's a question that precedes that that is monumental to our life change, and that question is, what has Jesus done? That's what you should focus on. You should revel in that moment by moment. What has Jesus done? Because when that ravishes your heart, you don't need to worry about what would Jesus do. You're going to do what Jesus would do because you're going to be experiencing so much of Jesus in his redemption and what he's done. It will transform your life. It will totally transform you. 
It tells us in uh, 1 John 4.19, we love because he what? He first loved us. What did Jesus do? Oh my goodness, he rescued you, he loved you. He was beaten beyond recognition for you. And when that ravishes your heart, when that captivates you, when there are moments that we had earlier through worship, and this is what you need to experience regularly, daily, through Bible study, through prayer, and when you listen to worship music and and the songs that we sang earlier, oh my goodness, there should have been a few moments where you felt like, you felt like God just sweep, he swept you up into his arms and smothered you with his love and affection. Believe me, You're going to love the people around you when you have that experience regularly. See, the reason why we don't have the life change oftentimes is we forget our justification. Our sanctification always comes out of our justification. If I'm struggling in life, I've got to go back and remind myself of what I have in Christ because I've forgotten that. Bless the Lord, oh my soul. All that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, oh my soul. Come on, soul. Bless the Lord. Forget not his benefits. I'm not doing so well right now because I've forgotten what I have in him. And that's, uh, that's why he's telling them to commemorate these days of what they've experienced. See, our problem is that we're gospel, we're gospel amnesiacs. We have gospel amnesia. I mean, we forget who we are. We forget what we have in Christ Jesus. We live poor, we live poor when in reality we are rich in Christ beyond our wildest dreams. Let me give you some examples of what that means. Um, So when I forget that I am justified in God's eyes through Christ, I become defensive, I blame shift, I'm easily offended, I'm slow to forgive, and I'm inauthentic in my relationships. I tend to kind of wear masks because I'm afraid to let people know who I really am because I don't understand that I'm justified in God's eyes. When I forget that I am adopted as a child of God, lavished with his love, the hardness of life causes excessive anxiety, anger, self-pity, and hopelessness. All of that begins to creep in and fill my life. I'm I'm forgetting how much he loves me, lavished with his love. He's with me. He'll never leave me or forsake me. When I forget that I am indwelt and empowered by the Holy Spirit, I am overwhelmed by trials and easily overtaken by temptations and easily intimidated by the challenges of life. And I drive erratically. And I run people off the road. And my wife says, is everything okay? I said, of course it's okay, get off my back. What would make you think things aren't okay? Well, it's just by how you're driving and how you're talking to me right now. What do you mean how I'm talking to you right now? Isn't that interesting? I mean, just listen, listen to us. We'll talk about that in a little bit, but just listen to what's coming out of your mouth. Listen to how you're responding to life, how you're dealing with the stress of life. When I forget that I am indwelt by the Holy Spirit, when I forget that I am guaranteed a place in heaven, I fear getting old and facing death and tend to hang on to the things of this world as if this world is all there is. So people who belong to God consecrate their whole life to him, commemorate the blessings from him, and then they contemplate their spiritual health in him. They contemplate their spiritual health in him. I apologize for my OCD this morning. All these C words and how I laid this out, that's just how I roll, okay? 
so deal with it. I'm just saying that jokingly. So contemplate their spiritual health in him. Verses uh, 6 through 10, this whole idea, he keeps using this idea of unleavened bread. You see that in verses 6 through 10. So you shall eat unleavened bread. Verse 7, no leavened bread shall be seen with you. No leaven shall be seen with you in all your territory. And, uh, and then it's, it's really fascinating here. And then in verse 9, and it shall be to you as a sign on your hand. And so this is right after verse 8 where he says, hey, make sure you tell your kids, tell your son what God has done in your life. And then, and then don't just talk about it. Let it be a part of your, your hand, your behavior. Oh, your eyes, your perspective, how you see life. Oh, and your mouth, what comes out of your mouth. So, so just as, as the consecration of the firstborn spoke of being consecrated to God, the feast of unleavened bread spoke of the cleansing of our lives of sin. So if you're wholly devoted to God, there'll be those times when you reflect deeply and allow God to bring cleansing to your life from sin. For instance, Psalm 139, 23, and 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Do you do that regularly? Or do you wait for someone to say, hey, what are you stressed out or what's going on here? How come you just bit my head off? Why did you respond like that? Or why are you acting like that? Or whatever. Do you wait until somebody has to tell you that? Or do you spend enough time before the Lord saying, God, search my heart. What's going on? Show me my, my anxious thoughts. That's literally what he means. Try me and know my thoughts, my anxious thoughts. And do you say, why am I so anxious? Or are you just, are you just stressed out and you just go medicate it? Woo! Because that's typically what we do in our culture. I'm stressed out, I'm angry, I'm sad, I'm whatever, and then we just, well, I'll just go surf the internet. I'll, go, I'll, I'll binge on Netflix for the next two years. That's right. I'm going to do that and all my troubles will go away. Well, no, they won't. Actually, they're just going to complicate them. They're still there. They'll always be there. And so what do you do? Do you, do you take a few moments, search me, O oh God, and know my heart, try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me? God, am I, am I responding to life appropriately? And lead me in the way everlasting. Hebrews 2.1, it says, Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away. Everybody look up here. Drifting. Drifting in the Christian life is suicidal. It's dangerous. So we need to do what? What does he say? Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard lest we drift away from that. What have we heard? What, what is the gospel? What is, what is our justification? What is our redemption? Years ago when uh, I, I had a boat, my buddy back there, Frank, had a boat. We all had boats. We liked going up to the lake. We did a lot of skiing. My kids were small, and uh, I got rid of my boat we had to pay for kids in a station wagon, stuff like that. You know how that goes. But my dad had a boat, so we had plenty of friends that had boats. That's a good thing. So if you have to get rid of your boat, the moral of the story is find some friends that have boats, okay? <laughs> I'm kidding. That was a joke. But uh, 
But so we would go up to Roosevelt Lake or Lake Pleasant or Saguaro Lake or Canyon Lake or whatever. We'd spend some days up there. But when my kids were small, we taught them how to swim. But then we'd always tell them when they're out there playing, we'd put the boats up in such a way and we'd say, just stay within these points of reference. You got these points of reference? Stay within this and don't go very far out there. And if you went too far out there, there was a buoy. And outside that buoy, it was dangerous. Because outside that buoy is where people were out there racing their boats and and skiing, it was just, it was crazy. And, and if a kid is on a tube floating out there, it would be life-threatening to them. So we tell our kids, you know, make sure you stay within these points of reference. I'll never forget this. We were camping out on the beach. It was actually in Roosevelt on the beach there, and somebody from another camp came over to our camp and say, hey, does, uh, uh, does anybody know whose kids those are out there that's floating beyond that buoy? And I go... Couldn't be my kids because my kids would never do that. <laughs> there are my kids. They were my kids. They were actually, it was our daughter, Natalie, and her friend. And they were floating right out beyond that buoy. And, of course, we all freaked out. And we got in the boat and brought them back and chained them to the shore. <laughs> and, and told them never do that again. No, actually, we were more conscientious and we just said, hey, we were much more careful to create these barriers and these points of reference. And we would do some of that when we would go uh, to the ocean. How many have ever gone to the ocean and you start playing out in the ocean and then you realize that you look up to see where, where you put your blanket out and all that and where your, your friends are and they're like not in front of you anymore. They're like way down the shore. What happened? Because of those waves and you begin to work your way. And so what we would tell our kids when you're out there playing in the midst of the play from time to time, Look up, see this lifeguard tower, that's your point of reference, stay in front of that. Oh, and by the way, if you get too far out there, have you ever seen the movie Jaws? <laughs> so we would show them the rerun of the Jaws movie, say, stay close to the shore, and play the music while they're sleeping at night. <laughs> okay, we didn't. We didn't do that. But, but we would say, hey, here's these points of reference. In the busyness of life, look up and say, okay, I'm, I'm safe. What are your points of reference? What are your points of reference when it comes to, to life? What are the points of reference we should look for when we contemplate our spiritual health? What does a healthy Christian look like? Or are you just drifting through life? Everything's okay. What? Remember what I said, drifting is dangerous. That's suicidal. People, you don't drift closer to Christ typically, okay? It doesn't happen that way. And uh, you typically drift further and further away from him. How about points of reference as it relates to marriage? If I came to you and you're married, would you be able to tell me what a healthy marriage looks like? Would you be able to say whether or not your marriage is healthy? How about your singleness? The Bible gives you some really great points of reference for singleness. Or how about parenting? Or how about finances? Or how about your emotional well-being? Or how about your physical well-being? You don't wait until you go to the doctor and he says, man, you got high blood pressure. You're about ready to stroke out. You better cut off some of that cholesterol and start exercising. Well, you don't wait until then. There's got to be some points of reference in your life. There should be some healthiness where you're going, wait, 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 wait. I'm drifting way out. 
My wife and I noticed that over the holidays. We always do that. We go, oh my goodness, we're drifting out into no man's land. Got to cut back on all this crazy eating. And so we did. We started doing some more fasting and it gave us opportunity to pray and think about God and do all that. But those, those are all points of reference. Do you have those in your life? Of course, we need to define sin. The Bible uses this idea of leaven as sin. Leaven tends to make bread get puffed up, so it's a good picture of pride, but sin is believing the lie that we are better off without God, that his rule is oppressive, that we will be free without him, that sin will make us happier than God. See, there's that old fear that we have deep in our heart, either from our sinful nature, from our culture, our world's views and values, and also our adversary that's dogging us like crazy, and that lie is that if I obey God, I'm gonna be unhappy If I obey him, I'm going to be unhappy. That goes all the way back to the garden. And that's called sin. Sin is what we do when we're not satisfied with God. We think we can find it out here somewhere apart from him. And then he gives us these points of reference. Hand, eyes, mouth. In verse 9, it shall be as a sign on your hand. That's your behavior. As a memorial between your eyes. That's your perspective evaluation of life's events, that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. The words, words are what? When you hear someone speak certain words, what does the Bible say about our words? Our words are a window to our heart. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, Luke 6, 45. And so when you listen to your words, that becomes a point of reference of what's going on in your life. For instance, let me ask you this. When you meet someone with a critical caustic tongue, what does that tell you about their heart? What kind of a heart do they have? A critical caustic tongue has a bitter heart. They have a bitter heart. How about a negative pessimistic tongue? What kind of heart do they have? They have an anxious or fearful heart. How about a boasting or self-pity kind of a tongue? Remember, I've I've defined boasting and self-pity are the two sides of the same coin. So boasting, self-pity... Boasting or self-pity tongue is a proud or insecure heart. How about a judgmental and a condemning tongue? That's a guilty or shameful heart. How about a filthy tongue? People like to tell jokes all the time, they're really filthy. It's an impure heart. On the other hand, encouraging, optimistic, positive tongue would be a joyful heart. A gentle, compassionate tongue would be a loving heart. A controlled, wise tongue would be a peaceful heart. So those are points of reference. Oh, and by the way, you might not say those things in front of people, the stuff that you're saying, because, of course, you've got to look spiritual, you know, in front of your friends, and they'd probably confront you anyway, and you probably would need it. But but oftentimes, there's things that we say behind closed doors that we might not say when the doors are open. You know what I'm saying? So you want to begin to hear what's going on even behind the scenes. When you're pulling away from your small group and you told everybody, oh, I love this group, and then you're driving out of their parking lot saying, I can't stand those people. What does that tell you? That I can't stand those people? Yeah. No, more than that, it tells you something's broken in your heart. There's something going on deep inside of you. It has less to do with them. Yeah, they might be one jacked up bunch of people. I understand that. But it really has more to do with you and how you're responding to them. Listen to what you're saying to yourself. What do you say when you watch a newscast or someone does a certain thing and what kind of words come out of your mouth? It's revealing your heart. Those are points of reference. Oh, and by the way, 
as he talks about our, our eyes and our, our mouth and our hand, this is how it kind of goes down in our life. Let me get through this and then I'll give you some examples and then we've got to move on to the next couple points. But how a person mentally evaluates an event. So think about this. When things begin to happen to you in your life, your circumstances, it's not your circumstances that make you feel and behave the way you feel and behave. It's not the antecedents of life. It's not what's happened to you. It's not what's happened to you that makes you feel. Remember the mouth? The mouth reveals what you're feeling. And remember your hand? It reveals your behavior, so how you feel and behave towards the events of life is not determined by the events of life. It's determined, listen, it's determined by your evaluation of those events. It's what you're saying to yourself. There's, the circumstances of life don't make you the way you are. I'm not, not minimizing what you've gone through, but it's what you're saying to yourself, and you're not thinking clearly. You have forgotten your redemption. You have forgotten who you're indwelt by. You have forgotten the grace of God. You have forgotten the God who loves you more than anything, and therefore you can face anything in life because you have him. You have God and no one has ever loved you more. Maybe it's been a while since you've allowed him to sweep you up into his arms and love on you. And believe me, when he does that, and when you experience that, you can face anything, and you're gonna evaluate the events of life differently, and you're gonna behave differently, and you're gonna feel differently. But it's not the events of life that make you feel and behave the way you feel and behave. It's always your perspective. It's always your evaluation. That's why it's so critical that you have a biblical worldview that you begin to add into the equation, God, you are for me and not against me. God, I don't know how I would make it if it wasn't for you. God, thank you for your love for me. I may envy, steal, or be anxious about money, so envy and anxious about money would be our feelings we can hear it coming out of our mouth and stealing would be our behavior. That's our hand as he talks about here. So I may envy, steal, and be anxious about money because I, I believe the lie. There's my perspective. I believe the lie that having more and more consumer goods makes my life more meaningful or because I believe that God doesn't care about me and can't or won't meet my needs. I may commit adultery or get depressed about my singleness because I believe the lie that intimacy with another person will give me more than God can give me. If I get angry when stuck in traffic, it's because I don't trust God. I believe the lie that God isn't in control or, or that his purposes for me are not good. If I overwork, it's because I don't trust God perhaps because I believe the lie that I need to prove or justify myself. And by the way, trying to change behavior alone doesn't work because the lie that created that behavior, those lies that create that behavior are still there. So behavior modification doesn't work. Just as lies about God, so there's your perspective, just as lies about God lead to slavery of sin, so the truth of God leads to freedom of service, the freedom of service. 
So spiritual growth and maturity happen when you can identify the specific lies behind your sin. So you listen to the words you're speaking. You watch how you're behaving and how you're responding to the events of life. That reveals your sin. And so spiritual growth and maturity happen when you can identify the specific lies behind your sin and the corresponding truths that will set you free. The corresponding truths that set you free are your points of reference. In the busyness of life, you better stick your head up and look around and go, wait, okay, things are still cool. I got a healthy marriage. Things are going well. Praise God. Or if you're outside of those references, you got to get back in and go, God, help me to get back in. That's getting rid of the leaven. So people who belong to God consecrate their whole life to him, commemorate the blessings from God, contemplate their spiritual health in him, and then they communicate the good news about him. This is quick. Verse 8, what did he say? Tell your son about the redemption, verse 14, when he asks you, tell him about the strong hand of the Lord, Romans 1.16, this is what should be hope, hopefully happening in your heart if indeed you are a follower of Christ, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. That should just be echoing around inside of you. Yes, the gospel, all that I have in him. I'm gonna tell the world about him. Acts 4.20, Peter and John were commanded by the religious council to stop spreading the gospel. This is how they responded. <laughs> I love it. For we cannot but speak what we have seen and heard. Charles Spurgeon put it this way. He was once asked by one of his students whether those who had never heard about Jesus could ever be saved. A troubling question. Indeed, he consented. But even more troubling, he said, was whether we who know the gospel and do nothing to bring it to the lost could actually be saved. He said, if Jesus is precious to you, you will not be able to keep your good news to yourself. You will be whispering it to your children's, into your children's ear. You will be telling it to your husband. You will be earnestly imparting it to your friend. Without the charms of eloquence, you will be more than eloquent. Your heart will speak and your eyes will flash as you talk of his sweet love. Every Christian here is either a missionary or an imposter. Burning hearts, he went on to say, will always result in flaming tongues. Anyone who really encounters Jesus won't need to be compelled to talk about him. They won't be able to stay silent. That's convicting, isn't it? Here's the last one. Cooperate with guidance through him. So people who belong to God will consecrate, commemorate, contemplate, communicate, and cooperate with the guidance through him. Did you notice the guidance? I mean, they had a cloud by day and a fire by night to lead them. Wow, I love that. I wish I could have that. I mean, wouldn't that be great to have a divine cloud to tell you where to go and what to do? Just follow the cloud. You want to get married? Just follow the cloud. Oh, she's got a cloud over her head. I think I'll marry her. Or about what job to take? Just follow the cloud. I mean, I mean you, don't, you wouldn't have to mess around with Google Maps or, or Siri. Just follow the cloud. But we don't get the cloud because that's Old Testament. But we do have some criteria. But here's the issue with this whole idea of God leading us. We all have times when we think, wouldn't it be wonderful to have God telling me what to do and where to go? But what if he leads you in a direction you don't want to go? What if he leads you as he's leading them? That's not the short path. They're taking the long route, 40 years in the wilderness. 
And this is what you always need to keep in mind that as he leads you providentially, your Father in heaven always knows things that you don't know and sees things that you can't see and will always, always lead you in ways that you, that are in your best interest, whether you can see it or not. That's verses 17 through 18. How does he lead us? In fact, it's important to be able to hear his leadings. John 8, 47 says that if you don't hear his words, then maybe you're not his. Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you don't hear them is that you are not of God. John 10, 4, it says, when the shepherd has brought out all of his own sheep, all of his own, his sheep, he goes before them and, and the sheep follow him for they know his voice. For they know his voice. Do you know his voice? We don't get the cloud, but this is what we do get. I put it on your notes. The word of God, spirit of God, thoughts and impressions and ideas that always need to be filtered through the word of God. You've got the people of God. Are you close to a few folks that speak the truth to you in love? Then you've got the providence of God, the good and bad circumstances of life. He's working in those. Yes, he is in open and closed doors. And then you've got the wisdom of God. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Wisdom is seeing and responding to life from God's perspective. Too often we want God to tell us what to do with hard decisions instead, God wants us to grow into wise people who discern what to do. And so the more we walk with him, the more we're gonna be able to discern the right decisions in life. The New City Catechism, question number one, it asks this question, what is our only hope in life and death? That we are not our own, but belong body and soul, both in life and death to God and to our Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. So, Father, thank you. Thank you for your words. Thank you for how you speak to us. And so, God, by grace, through faith in Christ, we belong to you. And because, and the reason why we belong to you is because you have lovingly redeemed us. And because you have lovingly redeemed us, we consecrate our whole life to you. Help us to regularly commemorate the blessings from you, lest we forget. May we contemplate our spiritual health uh, in you protecting us from drifting, communicating the good news about you contagiously to those in our lives and cooperating with your guidance uh, through our lives, through you, and all that you do through your word and through other Christians in our lives as we live our lives for your glory and our joy in Jesus' beautiful name. And everyone said, amen. Love you guys.